Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 106. Because Yehovah desires to live with us, He cannot nor will He build His house in us until we first empty ourselves of our own dedicated, consecrated, sacred space, which is given over to our idolatry long before we ever came to know Yehovah. Shalom and welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. I want to continue where I left off on the previous program and have a good look at some straightforward New Covenant connections that appear to be linked to the Qumran House of Tzedok 364-day solar calendar. Today, let's continue with our detailed look into the 50-day and 7-Sabbath count of the Omer, because it appears to me from the book of Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 7, that uh, Paul and his ministry team actually observed the count of the Omer according to the House of Tzedok 364-day solar calendar in the Book of Jubilees. Now, specifically about 20 centuries ago, the Judeans of the Second Temple Commonwealth, or the Second Temple Period, as we might like to call it, had a different understanding in how to count the Omer. They began to count the Omer with the day after the first day of unleavened bread, or what is called the Festival of Matzah. And since unleavened bread always starts on the 15th day of the first Chodesh, or month, and that is the benchmark of biblical time, according to Exodus 12, verse 2. Therefore, they established the Jewish custom to begin the count of the Omer on the following day, meaning on the 16th of the first Chodesh, or month, because the text of Leviticus 23, 9-11, says to waive the Omer on the day after the Sabbath. For the Judeans of that time period, the day after the Sabbath was not the day after the weekly Sabbath, but instead the day after the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, because that day is also called a Sabbath, albeit a special festival Sabbath. So, if you will permit me to read the text of Leviticus 23, 9 through 11, as I might like to express it from reading it in the Hebrew text. And Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and the Hebrew there is Uktsartem et Ktsirah, which can be translated as, and you harvest her cutting. 
Then you shall bring an omer of the head of your reshit katsir. In Hebrew, that means the first cutting. And uh, the idea of the omer is a precise measured quantity of bundled stalks of grain, also called a sheaf. So according to the command, the Kohen is supposed to bring reshit katsir, our first cutting to the Kohen. He shall wave that cutting. In Hebrew, the term is nof. It's an idea of moving to and fro in kind of a swinging motion. And that is the waving of the Omer before Yehovah to be accepted on your behalf. And this event is to take place on the day after the Sabbath. The Kohen shall wave him. So organically, this is going to lead me to a question. Well, who's right? Or which group has the more correct interpretation of the command in Leviticus 23, 9 through 11? Would it be the Pharisees of the post-70 CE, Second Temple period? Or could it be that the House of Tzedok priesthood, based on their teachings from the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls, are they more correct? Today, we're going to continue with our look into the Counting of the Omer narrative from the book of Acts, in Hebrew, the Sefer HaMasim, written by Shaul's ministry companion, the good Dr. Luke. So let us begin with the narrative in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 6 through 7. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. On our previous program, we studied the following points. Point number one. The text says, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. We learned on the previous program that Shaul and his physician friend, Dr. Luke, left the sailing port belonging to Philippi on the 22nd day of the first Chodesh, or the first month. Point number two. In five days, he joined the rest of his ministry team at Troas. So previously we learned that Shaul and Dr. Luke arrived in the Roman city of Troas in time to join the believing community there for the 26th day of the first Chodesh or month. On that 26th day of the first Chodesh or month, they began their 50-day count of the Omer, which is the same exact day that the Qumran house of Tzedok taught their followers according to the book of Jubilees. Point number three. The text says, We stayed seven days. Here we learned that Shaul, Dr. Luke, 
and the whole Yeshua-believing community of Troas waited until day seven in their count of the Omer. And then, on day seven, or the seventh day, which happened to also be a weekly Sabbath, they came together to break bread, as we are able to discern from the narrative in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Point number four. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, in that text, we learned from the passage that the English translation from the Greek is distorted. Literally, from the Greek text, it says, quote, Now, on the one of the Sabbaths, the disciples came together to break bread. Well, we learned that this is clearly saying that the Troas community of believers in Yeshua, that on that Sabbath, they began to number seven weekly Sabbaths, all in sequence according to the divine command in Leviticus 23, verse 16, where we learn, quote, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to Jehovah. And finally, point number five, the text tells us Paul was ready to depart the next day. And he spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Well, this tells us that Shaul delivered a very long drosh or a lecture until about 2 a.m. or perhaps 3 a.m. in the morning. And this is why Acts chapter 20 verse 8 says, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. The reference to midnight is likely based on the four watches of the night in Roman time reckoning, which one might expect since Troas was a city of the first century Roman Empire. The Roman four watches of the night could be approximated at 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 9 p.m. to 12 midnight, 12 midnight to 3 a.m., and 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Though, if I were to express this idea of midnight in biblical Hebrew, I would uh, probably more likely say be'emsa in Hebrew, meaning in the middle of the night. To an ancient Hebrew or Israelite, this would be understood as the middle second watch of the night, which might be better understood as the middle watch of any given night which always has three night watches, approximated at the following times, approximately 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. The second watch, approximately 10 p.m., to 2 a.m., and the third watch, approximately 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, on last week's previous program, I told you that I would address the matter of the 
two different ways to begin and end a day. A very long time ago, Pharisaic or Rabbinic Judaism established the Halakha or Jewish oral tradition that a day is always understood as sunset to sunset, or if you prefer, evening to evening. In my many years of living and working in Israel, as well as practicing Rabbinic Judaism 24-7, this is precisely how I always understood how to reckon time according to Jewish law. You see, I never deviated from the principle that a day is always understood as sunset to sunset. This is just the way it was for me and my family. So, as a result, our Friday evening Arab Shabbat would always start with sundown on what we would call a Friday night, and it would always end on what we would call Saturday night with Havdalah after that sunset. However, when I began doing this Qumran Sadok solar calendar, based on their understanding and teaching of the Book of Jubilees, I could clearly see that they understood a day to mean sunrise to sunrise, never sunset to sunset. So for me, I could not just ignore this information, and neither could I just erase it from my mind. I had to deal with it, and so I began looking deeper into Hebrew Scripture and into the life and ministry of Yeshua. Well, after researching the matter to my satisfaction, I can say with near 100% certainty that a biblical day is reckoned as sunrise to sunrise, a 24-hour period, which is the way the Qumran people calculated their days. And their reckoning is based on the way the ancient biblical Israelites and the ancient Sadok priesthood of the Bible, how they determined a day. In the narrative that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where it tells us that Paul was ready to depart the next day. A day is very well defined here as a 24-hour period that begins with a sunrise and it ends with the following next sunrise. If this statement in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, was at all meant to convey a sunset to sunset reckoning, then that late-night upper room gathering could not possibly be articulated as one of the Sabbaths in the count of the Omer, as it says in the Greek texts. Instead, if their reckoning was according to the Pharisaic oral law and custom of sunset to sunset, then that late-night upper room gathering would have expressed the count by saying it this way, Hayom Shemona Yamim Shehem Shavua Echad Vayom Echad Leomer Translated, today is eight days, 
which they are one week and one day of the Omer. Now, I know this because this is precisely the formula for the counting of the Omer in Rabbinic Judaism, even to this very day. And to my knowledge, the formula has not changed in 20 centuries. From the Greek text of the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, the language of the count of the Omer is absolutely well-defined as saying, quote, Today is the first one of the Sabbaths. Not, today is one Sabbath and one day of the Omer. It just does not say it that way. Today is one Sabbath and one day of the Omer. No, it does not show up in the text that way. And then, to clarify the point that the new day was to begin at sunrise, the good Dr. Luke tells us that the middle event of that night involving Eutychus was still considered the weekly Sabbath, albeit a very late-night Sabbath. But still, it was Sabbath. The narrative tells us that the team was planning on leaving, quote, the next day. You see, this is precisely what the Hebrew term means when it says, Mimcharat HaShabbat. In Hebrew, it has no other meaning other than to say tomorrow or the next day after the Sabbath. And by the way, it will interest you to know that Yeshua, in the days leading up to his Roman crucifixion, was on this same exact reckoning that a day does not mean sunset to sunset. Rather, to Yeshua, it meant sunrise to sunrise, just as it always was for the ancient Israelites in Hebrew Scripture. And I'm going to have much more to say about this when I show you the precise Passover week chronology of Yeshua's Passover supper, his arrest in the garden, his trial before the Sanhedrin, his crucifixion on that Roman tree, and his third-day resurrection back to life. All of this chronology in all four of the gospel narratives perfectly fits the sunrise-to-sunrise paradigm of ancient biblical Israel. Yeshua's third-day resurrection was not on Sunday morning. His resurrection happened on the weekly Sabbath of the 18th day in the first Chodesh or month, late during the second watch of three watches in the night. And we could say sometime between the hours of what we might call 10 p.m., Saturday night to 2 a.m. Saturday night, not Sunday morning, all the while the day being called Sabbath or Shabbat. Again, I'm going to have much more to say about this coming up in a future podcast, so stay tuned, okay? Now, please, I would like to continue with the count of the Omer narrative in the book of Acts chapter 20 and 
verse 9. Here is how it reads. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Poor guy. He fell asleep while Paul was bringing this very long drosh or all-night lecture. And if you go through the rest of the text, you will see that after he died, Paul runs down and he throws himself on top of the guy, just like Elijah did way back in the book of Kings when a young man in another upper room died in that story. And what happened with Elisha, who was the protege to Elijah, and Elisha also in 2 Kings chapters 4 and 5, he ends up also falling on top of a young man and bringing him back to life in the name of Jehovah. So Paul is clearly following a pattern that can definitely be read about in two places of the book of Kings in Hebrew Scripture. And then on next week's podcast, when we come back, we're going to be talking about what happened and what Paul said after he fell on that poor guy and started embracing him. Paul said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And that is in Acts chapter 20, verse 10. But it's interesting, it's not saying, for his life is in him. It's saying, for his life, meaning Messiah's life is in him. And then we'll find out on next week's podcast that after this whole incident was over with, they all ate in the upper room, and Paul went on to continue talking And it says in the verse, even until daybreak. And it says, then he departed. When this event happened, as it is written, it appears to me that this incident happened exactly on day seven of the 50-day count of the Omer, on the first Sabbath of seven Sabbaths in the count of the Omer, in the middle of the night, likely between 12 midnight and 2 a.m., or perhaps as late as 3 a.m., and it also happened on the second day of the second Chodesh, or month, in the Jewish New Year, which always begins 14 days before Passover. So again, the event that we're reading about in Acts chapter 20, verse 9, with this Poor guy that's sitting in that windowsill falls asleep and falls three stories down to the ground and they pick him up dead. Again, in repeating myself, that happened on day seven of the 50-day count of the Omer. It happened on the first Sabbath of seven Sabbaths in the count of the Omer. It happened in the middle of the night, likely between 12 midnight and about 2 a.m., perhaps even as late as 3 a.m., and it happened on the second day 
of the second Chodesh, or second day of the second month in the Jewish New Year. All four of these biblical chronology timestamps converged at that moment as it was documented for us by the good Dr. Luke in the book of Acts chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. The importance of this event, which occurs on the second day of the second Chodesh, or month, in the Jewish New Year, is referenced specifically in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. But for now, I do have to take a quick break here, and then, y'all willing, I'd like to come back here in just a moment and continue on where we left off here on this first half of the podcast, and let's go on to the second half hour. Please join me, okay? This is Avi Ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 106. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Welcome back to the second half hour of Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Let's continue where we left off just before our break. We were reading from the book of Acts, chapter 20 and verse 9. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story or the third loft in that structure and was taken up dead. The importance of this event, which occurs on the second day of the second Chodesh or month in the Jewish New Year, is referenced specifically in Second Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. So let's read it together in English. Second Chronicles 3, 1 through 2. Now Solomon began to build the house of Jehovah at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, in Hebrew meaning the Mount of the Teaching, where Jehovah had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Well, here we're told in English that King Solomon began to build the house of Jehovah, and allegedly the building of that house also began on Sabbath, or so we're told. Of course, this brings up an interesting observation and a question. Did King Solomon actually begin building the house of Jehovah on the weekly Sabbath of the second day of the second Chodesh, or month, which is always the first Sabbath in the counting of the seven Sabbaths of the Omer? Really? Further, this also happens to be the same chronological time frame that poor Eutychus experienced when he fell out of that third loft window and experienced a resurrection back to life. So what's up with all this? 
in 2 Chronicles 3, 1 through 2, was King Solomon violating a divine decree prohibiting work on the Sabbath, according to Exodus 31, 15 through 16. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to Jehovah. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep or guard the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. No, I do not think that King Solomon began to build the house of Jehovah on the Sabbath, even though it appears in English that that's what he started to do. And I'll explain why and how I understand this and what was actually happening. The statement that King Solomon began to build the house of Jehovah is not the best translation into English. The Hebrew for this statement is Vayechel Shlomo Livnot et Beit Yehovah. Permit me to translate this to something that is uh, more to the point, rather than using a kind of broad brush stroke with the words, He began to build on the Sabbath of the second day of the second month. Here is how I might express it from the Hebrew text. And he, referring to Shlomo, initiated or caused an empty space, or he caused a defilement by making that space common rather than consecrated for the purpose of building or to build the house of Jehovah. In other words, Solomon made that place very common by untying it or disconnecting it to anything that might give it a level of sanctity, regardless of the kind of sanctity that we might be talking about. And he did this on a very special Sabbath, that is, the first Sabbath of the seven Sabbaths in the counting of the Omer. Well, what is all this actually supposed to mean? Allow me to explain by paraphrasing the lesson from the context of the narrative in Second Chronicles 3, 1 through 2. This is kind of a paraphrased version of what I just said to you. Jehovah appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began to empty out the space, untie it, or if you want to say, disconnect it. And he defiled it by making it a common space on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. You see, this space of the Temple Mount had at one time belonged to Jehovah because Scripture says in Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth or land is mine. However, all the land had to be taken back from the gods of the nations who were invited into the land 
through the various peoples and cultures who brought them in with them. That Temple Mount space no longer belonged to Jehovah. Rather, the space was seized or usurped in spiritual dimensions. What King Solomon began to do was to actually strip that Jebusite grain threshing floor space. In Hebrew, it's a Goran. He stripped it of its power, its purpose, its meaning, its function. Solomon effectively rebranded and repurposed the space so that it can now belong to Jehovah and can be used for his holy and consecrated purposes. Hence, Solomon, quote, empties the space in some kind of a method or ceremony based on the fact that this is happening on the first Sabbath of the seven Sabbaths in that sequence of counting the Omer, according to Leviticus chapter 23. By stripping the space of all that it was in the spiritual dimensions of death and darkness, a place that definitely did not have Jehovah's divine light, Solomon had to first make the space common. Yeah, he profaned it as space previously seized and belonging to the gods that invisibly lived there. Only afterwards, the space was now free to be repurposed by Jehovah and free to be built upon with Jehovah's house of life. The gods of that threshing floor were essentially cast out. So this is why in 2 Chronicles 3, 1 through 2, the Hebrew word is chet lamed lamed. We say the word in Hebrew halal. And even in modern Hebrew, we'll say, oi, halal, halal, you know, like such a pity, such a defilement, such commonality in that, oi. So maybe I could say that Solomon halaled the space, though I don't think I can actually use it in this way in English, but I'm doing it anyway. Now, the same is true for us. Because Jehovah desires to live with us and to abide with us, he cannot, nor will he build his house in us until we first empty ourselves of our own dedicated, consecrated, sacred space, which is given over to our idolatry long before we ever came to know Jehovah. You see, we inherited idolatry and corruption and a spiritual condition that was just horrifying, coming from Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 in the Garden of Eden. Only when we empty ourselves and we choose to untie or loose our spiritual connections to the world's system, you see, then it gives Jehovah permission to kill off our previous consecrations and to essentially dedicate us into his own sacred space and for his purpose. Only then will Jehovah come to us and fill us and build his house in and among us. And you know, this is 
exactly what Paul or Shaul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has justness or righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Messiah with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Jehovah. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says El Shaddai, which they translate to English as the Almighty. Now, before we can be made holy, set apart, and consecrated to Jehovah, it is evident that we first must be stripped from our spiritual associations to the dark side and to be emptied and to be made common. This requires that we repent and separate ourselves from our own salvation efforts, from our own purposes, from our own meanings and purposes in life, including our great learning because we have all kinds of letters behind our name, which people love that, and it kind of gives everybody the impression that we're really much better than they are when we're not. You see, when we hang on to an identity that is not Jehovah's identity, then he's not going to do much with us. We've got to empty ourselves before he will fill us. That's what Solomon did in that area before he decided to build the house of Jehovah. So we have to empty ourselves of our own meaning and purpose and function in life, everything that seeks to serve the gods that we worship in this world. And then Jehovah will come to us and repurpose us and fill us. And that is a biblical truth. And I think what better time to do this than to do this on the first Sabbath of the seven Sabbaths of the Count of the Omer, during the 50-day Count of the Omer, starting on the 26th day of the first month. Thus, it is important to understand, because on day 50, which is the day after the seventh Sabbath in the Count of the Omer, we are ready for Shavuot, or Pentecost, at sunrise, which always supports the Tzedok teaching theme of an annual restoration and renewal of covenant between Jehovah and his people, that is, his nation Israel. It's always on Pentecost, or Shavuot, when Jehovah wants to reveal this theme of a renewal of covenant between us. And we can see that in the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, I'm getting close to ending here, but I'm not quite done yet. Coming up on the next program in this series on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the House of Tzedok and their 
solar calendar based on the Book of Jubilees, I plan to elevate this message up to another level, and uh, I'm asking you to join me for the next program because it's going to allow us to fully appreciate exactly what King Solomon did in 2 Chronicles 3, 1-2, and how it directly relates to what happened in Acts chapter 20, verses 10-12, through 12, when Eutychus fell down dead from that third-floor loft as Paul was delivering his rather long-winded drosh or lecture, likely about the meaning and purpose behind the Count of the Omer, and why it is linked to the seventh day and the second day of the second month in the count of the Omer. Right now, however, before I do run out of time for this episode, I want to address one more thing that happened in Acts 20, verse 9. The seventh day of the 50-day count of the Omer has a special meaning to convey, even if you are to understand it, through the eyes and ears of today's Orthodox Jews who religiously practice the counting of the Omer, even if they are doing it on the wrong day and at the wrong time. I'm not looking at that. It's just the message that they are presenting in the count. Regardless, I know they still have an awareness of the significance of the seventh-day count of the Omer, to help us understand that significance of this particular day, let's read this from Psalm 33, verses 5 through 6 together. He, referring to Jehovah, loves righteousness, or justness, and justice. He says, The earth is full of the good of Jehovah. By the word of Jehovah the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. In today's Judaism, the seventh day of the Count of the Omer conveys a deep spiritual truth that involves a flow of divine life and light that I suppose we can say descends downward from the messianic kingdom of heaven above. This good day that we're talking about is always about Jehovah's construction or building of his house in us through the promise of a messianic redemption and resurrection to life. And this is what the count of the Omer is all about. We are to begin counting forward seven Sabbaths towards Shavuot or Pentecost, which is always about an annual renewal of covenant at least as the House of Tzedok priests spoke about it in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now let us take a look at why resurrection life is built into the theme of the counting of the Omer. And remember Yeshua's statement in John 12, 23-25. Yeshua said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
the numeric value of the Hebrew term Sabbath, or Shabbat, is 702. And this is called gematria. I know you're familiar with it because you also read Revelation chapter 13, where it says the name and number of the beast is 666. That is a numeric valuation to the letters in Greek, which can also be the same in Hebrew. So we know gematria is something that works in the Brihadashah or the New Testament. So we know Sabbath or Shabbat has a numeric value of 702. For me, however, it's not so much about the meaning of the number as it is more about the way that the number is used in Hebrew. Here is the word Shabbat. Shin bet tav. Shin has a value of 300. Bet is 2. Tav is 400. Total value, 702. Now, let's take the numeric value of the Hebrew word for divine light. It's 207. The Hebrew word is or. Aleph, Vav, Resh. Aleph has a value of 1. Vav is a 6. Resh is 200. That's 207. Well, as you can see, Shabbat, or Sabbath, and divine eternal light are the exact inverse of each other. In other words, divine light is in Sabbath, and Sabbath is in divine light. Now let us come to appreciate the Eutychus narrative in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 9. The young man is Eutychus, and in Greek his name means an expression of favor or mercy, that is, something good, a good report, or something of a good reputation. All these ideas describe the nature and character of Messiah Yeshua through the Spirit of Jehovah. So we can see that through the dying of this young man, Eutychus, Messiah Yeshua revives his dead body through the divine, eternal, messianic light that Paul was likely presenting in his lecture on that late-night Sabbath when poor old Eutychus fell down dead while listening to Paul's long-winded lecture. Now, I don't know anything about the life of Eutychus, whether he was a good believer or a bad believer, whether he was struggling with this or that, and I don't know anything about his faith walk. All we know is he was sitting in the windowsill, listening to Paul talk on and on about a lot of interesting things, I'm sure, and then he fell out and died. For whatever reasons, Jehovah had a purpose for why that happened. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-43, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So we have here this idea of resurrection as it's tied to the counting of the seven Sabbaths of the Omer. Now, we're going to come back next week and talk more about this. 
Plus, we're going to also talk about Yeshua's scolding of the Pharisees and the temple service priests of Jerusalem's Second Temple Commonwealth, or Second Temple Period. I'm going to show you how this second day of this second month building and resurrection theme fits into the narrative in the book of Acts because of something else that Paul said in a different place, that of Colossians 1.27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Goyim or the Gentiles, which is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. Folks, that's about resurrection life. Messiah in you, the hope of glory. It's about the resurrection that is promised to us at the last day. So don't give up hope in that. For now, I'm going to leave it there. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 106. And today's program is part 10 of my multi-part series on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community. Today, we had a look at the New Covenant text of Acts 20, verses 2 through 9, while focusing in on verses 6 through 9, demonstrating, at at least in my mind, some straightforward connections made to the 50-day and seven Sabbaths count of the Omer, as it was taught by the Qumran house of Sadok and their 364-day calendar, as it was also tied to the Book of Jubilees. Now, if you have any questions or comments about any of these programs, please do navigate over to our website at www.cominghome.co.il. Again, cominghome.co.il. Y'all willing, I'll see you next week, okay? I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.